His last semester of grad school, Tyson still lived in his car. When the university revoked all the grad student teaching scholarships, he was forced to find a way to continue on with his schooling. But he couldn't afford rent, so Tyson moved, removed the passenger seat from his tiny Hyundai Ascent. He built a bed where the seat had been, and he parked up the canyon at nights. It was great, he said. No rent, fresh mountain air. From that point on, I was hooked on the idea of budget small living, unquote. But that's just the beginning. How do we get from here to surviving in the Alaskan wilderness in the lowland south of Denali National Park for 21 days in below freezing temperatures after his home burnt to the ground, killing his best friend and dog, a lab who had been with him through six years of rough living and eating from burned out cans of food with melted plastic in them from the fire that decimated all his belongings. Stay tuned for my interview with Tyson Steele, mountain man, survivor, poet, hermit, and teacher. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Tyson, welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Hi, Lori. Thanks. You were recently rescued from the Alaskan wilderness via helicopter And we'll get to that part of the story, but can we start a little earlier? What drove you to Alaska in the first place? Or maybe even before that with what inspired you to take apart your car and live in it during grad school? Uh, It all came down to um, budget, basically. Losing my scholarship and not knowing how to pay for rent, I uh, decided that I would just try to live as minimal as possible. And it worked in my car. I've been kind of that way previously in my life, trying to live in small rooms and test my will of mind to, to in small boxes and stuff like that. Um, even as a little, little kid, kind of had an obsession actually. But uh, after grad school and living in that small of a thing, I realized I could really live a life that I would like to live, not having to pay so much to heat a building, heat a massive McMansion or something, I can now, I can heat as little room as possible and spend a lot more time outside. What drove me to Alaska, Alaska's always been in my blood. My dad lived in Yupik village on the Bering Sea. I've got pictures of him dog sledding with my grandparents, hunting and trapping and fishing with the natives, learning all that, all that old, old knowledge. And it drove me, uh, it's always been on my mind to go to Alaska. They moved to Utah when he was young. And I just always had that goal to get there. Throughout the years, I worked some summer jobs. And then I finally found some land. And like it fit my requirements of cheap living, it was very cheap land, just 40 acres for 16,000 bucks. I thought it was a scam. That's 400 bucks an acre. And I had to buy it sight unseen and I went up and I decided to homestead over the 
course of a couple years to prep, but that's where I'm at. How did you dare buy it sight unseen if you thought it was a scam? You just thought, well, if it's not a scam, it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, it was like a third of the price of plots in the area. I'm like, there's no way that's possible. And it's it's at a pristine top of the hill location. It's surrounded by state land and it has a it's bordered by river and it's fully wooded, the whole thing, with big tall trees. I called a couple real estate agents. I'm like, this can't be real. It seems way too good to be true. And apparently it was just an old widow who's trying to get rid of something so she could have some cash in the last years of her life. She was she was sick or something. And I hopped on that. I was actually living in China at the time. So I had to fly to a bunch of places to verify my identity at the US embassy and all this stuff. And it wasn't until nine months later that I actually saw it. And that was a disaster in itself. It took seven days to hike there because we could only land so close by float plane. It was, there was a reason it was so cheap. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, did you know that going in that there was like no access to it? I speculated and I saw that there were only nearby lakes that I could land on, but I did not know how crazy the terrain would be. The terrain is just boggy, swampy, right off the plane. It was right up to my hips. It took all day to hike a quarter mile. Wow, that's incredible. So how do you even get to your homestead then if it's seven miles of that? Is it seven miles of bog? Well, it's three miles from the lake that I have to land on. Oh, okay. And it's all bog, hills, willows that are just intertwining like mm. like crazy. The, the branches just go sideways, so you have to cut through them. Yeah, that stuff's and, horrible to get through. Oh, Yeah. And Devil's Club, it's a big spiny plant that's as tall as a human with terrible spines that dig into your skin. And I also had 2,000 pounds of gear, so that's not a... I could have hiked it in a day, but I had all the gear that I had to have Did with you me. pull it? Were you pulling it on a sled? How do you carry 2,000 pounds of gear? Just one backpack full at a time. Go to a river, travel half a mile, go back and forth, back and oh forth. Oh my gosh, you're a glutton for punishment. That is such hard work. I had my GPS on the whole time. I logged about 300 miles in a month (laughs) (laughs) with all the back and forth. (laughs) You are a true mountain man. Wow. I actually had to abandon some of the gear and it's still out there two years later. It's still out there. It's like big sledgehammers and vices, all the heavy stuff. All the stuff (laughs) you needed to build with. Yeah. Yeah. So luckily I still have it and I'll get it next year. So once you set up your homestead, what does setting up a homestead mean? Okay, so that initial property that I just mentioned was my first property, my first 40. I call it my upper 40. I purchased this lower 40 is what I call it, this September, 2019, September. Two years ago, I met an old man in the woods, an old hermit at this lower 40 acres. He'd been living there for 20 years, didn't know what Amazon, Facebook, YouTube was. He didn't know what any of those things were. And he had grown all of his food in greenhouses. And he had a really nice, full, complete setup. Vietnam veteran, he had all these conspiracy theories because of some of the stuff that he'd seen in Vietnam, doing some crazy things with the CIA and stuff like that. And he just didn't want anything 
to do with it anymore. He wanted to just get away from it all. And uh, I established a really good friendship with him and talked with him over the years. But this last summer, 2019, he passed away. And it was kind of in an unwritten will to kind of put me first in line to purchase the property because he knew that I had a care for that area of the land, that I had a dedication to get there. And it was sad that he died, but it was tremendously helpful to get leg up on my homesteading project. So to answer your question from a bit ago to, to homestead, I need access one and he has an airstrip. So now that I have it, I can land right on the property. Oh, wow. That's a huge difference, isn't it? Oh yeah. Very huge. There's three miles of roads all within that 40 acres that he has built. So I have access to all the trees that I need for building. There's seven outbuildings in addition to the cabin, which is now burned down. But I have the other outbuildings, a woodshed, a sawmill. And the sawmill is actually powered by, uh, I mentioned he was an engineer. He re-engineered an airplane engine to power the sawmill. Oh, it's wow. pretty incredible. Kind of scary to start, but it's. <laughs> you know, I think that I was watching a documentary on a guy, and I can't remember his name, but who was in the Alaskan wilderness, and he just went out there, homesteaded, built everything from scratch the cabin, the food storage to keep it away from the bears, you know, all of the different things that you had to do to survive. And he'd go into town every once in a while to get supplies, maybe nails or something. But for the most part, he just lived out there for 40 years and, you know, until he died. I think he. Dick Brennicky, I think, is his name. Is that his name? Yeah. Yeah, Um, And it was amazing to watch. I think anybody that can do that, that can go into the just the severe wilderness like that and survive and, you know, use their own skills and their own wits to build what they need. It's phenomenal. Oh, yeah. He's an inspiration to me. If we're talking about the same guy, Dick Brennicky. We uh, probably are because how many can there be? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. So tell me then about, let's jump ahead to your home and the experience that you had recently. I saw it on TV. I saw it on the internet. There's a picture of you with a big SOS in the snow, waving your arms, walking out from the burnt pile of rubble that had been your home and the helicopter blades coming down to rescue you after, was it, I said 21 days earlier. Was that correct? Or was it 23? Uh, 23 days. Yeah. 23 days. Take us there. The fire started late one night, one or two in the morning when I overloaded the wood stove with a piece of cardboard. I tried to just start it up quickly. I was cold. It was negative 15. I had let the coals die down. I planned to just start a fire real quick and go back to sleep. And when I was going back, starting to drift off back to sleep, uh, fire started dripping from the ceiling above me, like uh, plastic drips of fire. The Vietnam vet who lived there previously, he had built his cabin with a lot of tarps and plastic. He used one by fours. And I knew it was a fire hazard, but I figured since he'd lived there for so long, I'd be able to use that as a base camp to start something new. How long had you been living there at this point? Three months. Two full years in Alaska. I was a winter caretaker last year, and then I worked at a fishing lodge for the summer. 
And then September to December 16th uh, was when the fire started. So about three months. Okay. So what happened is a cardboard spark went up the chimney and landed on a portion of the roof that had the plastic and it ignited. I found that out later when I went outside to grab some snow to maybe put it out that the whole roof was on fire. And at that point, I only really had seconds to react because it had so much plastic. It was spreading really fast, spreading almost like gasoline. And there were two thoughts that came to my mind. I need survival gear and I need to get my dog out of there. So I rushed back inside and I just throw a whole bunch of things on the bed, anything within arm's reach. There's flames that are already starting to circle around me and the roof is collapsing. My dog is huddling up in a corner trying to get away from it all. And he's a 110 pound chocolate lab. I can't really move him off, but I, I finally just grab a leg and I pull him. And he, since there's so many flames around so suddenly, all I saw that he was that he left my side of vision. He was on, on the ground and I figured he had run at that point. I hoisted all the gear around my shoulder. It was like sleeping bags and jackets and stuff like that. I was only in my long johns. I had no socks. I put on some boots real quick and then I, I headed out. And then the third thought came to me, I need to get my rifle. So I have some protection against wolves and moose. And I go around to the front side of the house where there's not as many flames and grab the rifle. And that's when I realize my dog is still inside and that he is engulfed in flames at this point. And this is something I've not told the media because it's, uh, it's so fresh, but what I had to do was an, was an old yeller scenario where I had the rifle and I had the bullets and I was just hoping that I could put him out of, out of his misery. And I fired some shots. I could not see where he was. I just anticipated where he might be. And it, it was to no avail. I, all four bullets missed. And then the roof started collapsing, black smoke filling my lungs, and I had to leave. And all I could really do at that point was just scream. There was no time to cry or, and I don't even know how to describe the scream. It was just release. It was an agonizing, I, all I could do was scream. I was shocked at that point. My communication devices had burned up my phone. I had a Garmin inReach, which is an SOS communicator. I have a button. All I have to do is press that button to get help. It burned up. And my VHF Marine radio, which can get emergency frequencies, that burned up. So I had a good plan, but I didn't think of the fact that I put it all on the same charging station. So I sat down in the snow for a while and I just I was shocked. I don't know how long. I just, I had to stay warm. It was negative 15 degrees outside. So I had to stay close to the fire. I've only got my long johns on. And then it occurred to me after a moment, I have to save my food. All my food is burning. All the Crisco and oils are contributing to the flames. The old man had built his floors with rubber and like rubber mats. And so when rubber ignites, it's super hot. It's very, very hot and it was burning and propane tanks were going off. I had 500 rounds of bullets and they were all going off all at once and it's all next to the food. 
So it was like a war zone as I'm trying to put shovels of snow onto the flames to put them out, but they're not going out. And it took eight hours from two in the morning to about 1030 in the morning. That's about when the light shows up in that portion of Alaska. I was working to put out the fire and I made an inventory of my food and I could eat two cans a day for 35 days approximately. And they're just mystery cans because all the labels are burnt off. The food inside has boiled and has burst open and the smoke is circulated inside the can. So everything tastes like plastic. There are a few things that were still good, like a few cans of chili were not burst open and they, they were okay. There were green beans, which I hate, but that's what the old man had before he uh, left it to me. There are pineapples, which I'm allergic to, cream of mushroom soup, which I also hate. So the food was for the next 23 days was just pretty awful. I had a can of uh, oatmeal and it was just blackened, right? It's like charcoal oatmeal. And I had no choice but to eat it for breakfast in the morning. Wow. You got nothing going on there. You can't even wait for a good meal to make you happy. Yeah. Wow. Oh, Tyson, I am so sorry for your loss. Thank you. It, it's, uh, it, it was hard. And um, the imagery that comes to my mind, it's really tough. It keeps me up at night. And at this point, it's really only been a couple of weeks. Weren't you just rescued a few weeks ago? Yeah, I was uh, rescued on January 9th, from December 16th to January 9th. I, uh, I had Christmas alone. I had New Year's alone. I gave myself an extra portion of canned peaches, though, on Christmas. That was my gift to myself. <laughs> what was going on in your head being alone like that? I mean, obviously you have, must have dialed that down when you live alone by yourself. But, you know, I know when I'm alone, you know, let's say my kids are gone and I have a weekend alone. And if I don't go out and talk to anybody, like after three days of that, I'm like crazy zone. <laughs> yeah. How do you go for long extended times having no one to talk to? And particularly in that space where, you know, you're struggling to stay warm, you don't have enough food to even heat your internal furnace, of, you know, to run your body. And I mean, you're in just dire straits here. What, where was your mind? Yeah, it got cold. I, it was in the negative 30s for a, a large portion of the time. How do you survive that? I built a shelter around the wood stove after the fire had cleared. It was by no means warm. In fact, when I peed in a bucket inside because I didn't want to go outside, it would freeze within minutes. But it wasn't as cold as outside the shelter. So the Ritz-Carlton, you were staying in the... Yeah, I was staying in the Ritz-Carlton. <laughs> swanky place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I occupied my time a lot. I knew it was now a mental game. I had enough wood for the whole winter so I could keep a fire going to cook food and to stay warm, but I couldn't just stay huddled around the fire all the time or I'd just I'd go crazy. It was a mental game. There were a couple books that I found. There were some crossword puzzles that I found, but I ran out of battery lights in my headlamp very shortly after that. And there's only six hours of light in an Alaskan oh day. Oh my gosh, you had so many cards stacked against you. Holy cow. Yeah. And the crossword puzzles were useless too. They were like ultra easy for kids, like dog and cat, you know, just, <laughs> just stupid. Not Nothing for an English major, right? <laughs> Okay, so what did you do, really? I spent a lot of time talking to myself. I kind of greeted every morning with a, with a greeting that I just say, I'm 
I counted the days, right? Like this is day one, day two. I say, greeting day seven. This is the first time that you've had your time, you know, like good morning and <laughs> make a friend. <laughs> yeah, make a friend out of the day. And I knew that sooner or later someone would come looking for me and that they would need places to land. So I had to prepare the ground for them to land. And that included my airstrip to make sure that they felt safe landing on the airstrip. But it's dangerous to land there in the winter. No bush planes really do it because it's too narrow and there's a lot of room for wiggling and you can clip a wing on the trees nearby. So, so were you I, like shoveling snow or what? How do you prepare that space? So I had to go to a nearby lake a half mile away, but I didn't have snowshoes. They all burned up. So I had to tread through about five feet of snow just a little bit at a time every day. It took days to get to the lake. And from there, I have to cut a hole in the ice to make sure that it's thick enough for something to land. Oh, um, wow. Then I have to make signs for the people to read from the sky. This mm. like It's okay to land here. So I kept myself occupied with that and singing throughout the day because I don't have a rifle to keep the moose away. And that mm. was scary. So I just sing a little song for the duration to keep them scared. What were you most afraid of when you're out there alone in this space? At that point, I was most afraid of making another mistake. My initial mistake was hastily making that fire and the cardboard going up and starting the house on fire. And anything could go wrong. I'm eating terrible food. What if I get a urinary tract infection? I can't do anything. All my antibiotics have burned up. What if I get something stuck in my eye as I'm building the shelter? What if I get frostbite? In fact, my leg, I have a torn MCL from a year ago and the circulation's cut off a little bit. There were times where I'd have to spend the whole day just warming my leg up because it, it was so cold. I, I couldn't move around on it very well. And I was scared that I could uh, cut the circulation off and uh, get frostbite on my foot and uh, lose a foot or something like that. I was really scared of making another mistake, just slipping on ice or falling through ice. There was no way I could make it out. There was no way to hike out. Well, there was a way, but it would have been more dangerous than to just stay put. You know, I have found that these types of things in people's lives, the really traumatic spaces are often the things that teach them and create within them a story and an understanding and it's different for everybody, but it's usually a jumping off space for where they need to go and what they need to do and who they're going to become. I know it's really early in the process here, but how do you see this event informing where you go from here? Yeah, it is early in the process. I'm still trying to think about that. My initial sort of epitome was that the things that I had acquired over the years, all the all the tools and stuff and my laptop and all the stuff, those were just things. They didn't really matter. I would kind of mourn over something that I'd lost, but then I'd realize I lost my dog. I don't care about those things. I want to see my family again. I don't care about these things that I have. And I've kind of always been obsessed with tools and acquiring things for my survival, but there are people that I love that matter and being alive matters so that I can see them again and be with them. So do you think that you will stay around your family more or will you go back up to Alaska and homestead? 
I'm trying to get back as soon as I can. It is my home. I will have some further communication redundancies, satellite internet, perhaps, so I can keep regular communication with them. But yeah, it's definitely it's definitely my home. I was actually sad to leave when the helicopter, when I was going up in the chopper, I was looking down at everything. I'm like, I've got work to do. I've, I've got logs to cut. The one thing that I still would, that I do value is an axe. I can do a lot with an axe and that's all I need to survive. And it's kind of a powerful image in my mind now, the, the image of the axe, the myth of the axe, um, the history of the axe. I think there's a four-part poem about that you can write. It's waiting Uh, to come out of you. (laughs) Ode to the axe. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, um, so tell me about the rescue then. I mean, you've been out there 22 days and you hadn't heard from anyone. What did you think? Did you just hear the helicopter blades swooshing? And when you did, what were your thoughts? There were a lot of things going through my head. I think I was talking to the media a lot with this, and they were kind of reaching for an answer that I was uh, that I fell apart and was crying and was helpful. That's not what happened. <laughs> I, I I just heard the chopper and I knew it was for me because there's not choppers in the area. There's air traffic, but never choppers. And a few things went through my mind. I'm like, oh no, this is bigger. I thought it was going to be a private affair. I thought my private pilot would come out and pick me up on the lake. Now it's bigger. I Can I afford a helicopter? Are they giving me a ride? Are they just checking up on me? Do they know what they're looking for? Will they come over my property and they'll see a smokestack? They had infrared cameras, in fact, and they could see heat. Would they look at that and not know that something had burnt down, that I was living fine? So I grabbed my boots real quick. Just the light jacket went outside. It was negative 20, something like that. My hands were freezing cold, and I just started waving my arms. My you big wanted SOS. to be rescued, didn't you? Yeah, I did, definitely. But I was just a little concerned with how it would uh, unravel at that point. But grateful to the officers involved, for sure. Like when, when they landed and I went over to them, it was nice to see a friendly face. And they promised me to, to get me a meal and a shower back home. And I hadn't showered for a long time. I was grimy, really grimy. So I was excited about that, but uh, a lot of it was sadness because I was leaving this thing that I'd worked so hard and I had felt like I had had failed. And I had felt sad that I also never got to give my dog a proper goodbye, a proper burial. Did you find him after the fire? I did. I did. His remains were there. I had to have closure. So I searched through the flames when they died down a little bit and there was only a little bit left of him. And, oh, sorry. I can't imagine how hard that would have been with the the one being that's been with you and all of those hard spaces and up there in the Alaskan wilderness and that you love. And I know how much I love my dog and to lose somebody that's that important to you. I'm just heartbreaking. And then to live with that and, you know, through the rest of the ordeal. Yeah, his uh, remains are still up there and I feel a little guilty that I wasn't able to do anything with it. And it was a very, very hard mental, psychological thing that going on. I know you have a path ahead of you still. You know, this is so fresh and the experience so fresh that there's a lot of work to be done yet. Yeah. 
of just living and experiencing and feeling and healing. Yeah, I'll heal and then I've just got to rebuild. I'm pretty set on it. Like I said, it's my home and uh, just it's going to be hard to go back, see the memories, walk the same trails that I did with my dog. It was a daily routine to walk the border of the property. Uh, it's going to be hard to walk that again. We become different from our experiences. You know, we never stay the same. We're always changing. But when we have really life-influencing experiences like this, we become different people. How do you think that you will live differently and do differently as the person you are now versus the person you were when you bought the homestead and started it? Well, for one, I feel like... I can handle a lot. I uh, used to get nervous about messaging a potential date on Tinder. And then I go, survive 23 days at sub-zero temperatures. You know, who cares? There's nothing that uh, can harm me. I love that. In <laughs> fact, one of the interviews that we did last year, there was a gal and she, oh, it's like the success resume or something, but it, I can't remember the exact term at this point, but it's where you think about the hardest thing you've ever done. And whenever any fear comes up, you do the exact thing that you're doing. And it's like, I made it through that. This is nothing, you know, and you just uh -huh. use that over and over to remind yourself what a badass you are. You know, this is nothing compared to making it through what I made it through. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a few other things that I've come out stronger, I think. I can't pinpoint it right now, but yeah, I definitely feel that it's helped. And just the sheer perspective on life has changed. The things that I value and the relationships I have with family and friends. What advice do you have or, you know, what have you learned? And again, early, early in the process, so none of these questions are really fair yet because I don't know that you've had a chance to process much of them, but do you have something that you'd want to share with the audience? I think in the darkness, there was a lot of, a lot of darkness, only six hours of light. And I had to spend a lot of time in my makeshift shelter snow cave. And that was dark. In there. So even with the six hours light, I was almost perpetually dark and perpetually cold and perpetually hungry. And I could have sat down and maybe just wept or cried. Or, and I never did that because I consciously made the choice to see the beauty in things. It's hard to see beauty when you're at negative 30 degrees. But you look at the snow around you and it's just this white wonderland. In fact, it was snowing on Christmas and I sang that winter wonderland Christmas song, whatever it is, just to make things light. There was one time a moose came out and trampled my SOS sign. And I was scared because it could easily trample my makeshift shelter and everything. I don't have a gun. I happened to be hungry for a steak that morning and I just looking at that like, oh, you're a big lump of steak. But I looked at, at it for a moment and had about a five minute staring contest. And I just saw the beauty in the moose and just had a conversation with it. Like, listen, I don't have a gun. Please don't hurt me. Live another year, you know? And then I look at the moon. There was a full moon one night that was just so bright, brighter than I've ever seen. And I, it was beautiful. And the Northern lights would come out early on in like uh, day two or three, there were the Northern lights just 
twinkling green and pinks in the sky. And it was stunning. It was stunning. Despite my circumstances, everything around me was stunning and beautiful. And it was, and uh, I clung to those moments, even though I had so much pain and hurt. And I think that's important to see the beauty in things because there is beauty everywhere. And that's the poet in me, I, I suppose. But I literally can see beauty in any hardship. And it kept me sane, I think. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. How long do you think that you will be down in Utah with your family? When do, when do you plan to go back? I would like to go back in late March when the ice is still solid and I can take some snow machines out and haul some freight and uh, get some building materials out there so that come spring, I can start building. You're hardcore, Tice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> So what the audience doesn't know is Tyson and I were in grad school together. We taught together and I remember going, yeah, I remember going down to the parking lot and checking out your makeshift home in that car and uh, thinking, man, this dude is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> Who knew yeah. that? You know, <laughs> love you, know who you are. You're this eccentric poet. Um, I just thought, I, I just don't know that I could live in my car. And the stuff that you're doing, you know, the homesteading, the the love for Alaska, the strength of heart to be able to survive and to keep your wits about you during such terrible discomfort and pain mentally and physically, my respect and love to you, Tyson. Thank you. I will keep you in my prayers and send positive energy for your healing and your success up in the Alaskan wilderness. Thank you, Lori. <laughs> it means a lot. I'm grateful to Tyson for sharing his story, especially with it being so new and raw. But I really liked his takeaway, this idea of when we get into our hard times of looking for the little pieces of beauty, for the magic, for the things that are there before us that we can focus on, that we can look for the light. Couple of announcements before we break off here. In 2020, I started a new section of Love Your Story called Tell Your Story. If you are interested in collecting your story in audio format for whoever, posterity, personal history, or if you have a family member or a friend that you would like to have privately interviewed to collect their story, contact me at Lee at msn.com and put tell your story in the subject line. Remember the website, loveyourstorypodcast.com. You can access all of the past 160 plus episodes, share them, listen to them. We've got pictures, whoever's being interviewed, their picture is on the cover there. You don't get that when you're on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. So the website's a fun place to go because you can see the people that are speaking. Have a great week, people. Share the love and I will see you in two weeks with the next episode of the Love Your Story podcast.